The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed, the podcast where we do the the movie reviews for the older movies on streaming sometimes, hmm. and our patrons pick it. You're My very, name is William Bibiani. Very articulate, sir. Thank you. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And the premise of this show... <laughs> Uh, was uh, we were inspired by the libraries at hand uh, through the various streaming services that we are uh, we have access to that we subscribe yep. to, and we wanted to explore a little bit. Yeah. So we uh, went through we go through all of our streaming services and we try to pick movies that we haven't seen before. Yeah, kind of every, co- uh, cover cover something new, fill in like holes yeah. in our education. Every episode of Critically Reclaimed, uh, Whitney picks two films from a streaming service. I pick two films from a streaming service, and then we let our patrons decide over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network which of those four films we're going to review. And I love this because Whitney and I have seen a lot of movies, but nobody has seen everything, and this way we have an excuse to fill in every little gap in our film education. Every single one. We're gonna we're gonna take care of it, and by the time we're done with this podcast in twenty one eighty five, we oh, will wow. have we're, seen we're, everything. We're very, we're very long lived, aren't we? Well, that's the plan anyway. <laughs> I'm eating oatmeal. It'll, it'll be great. What uh, and what film are we talking about? And what streaming service did we explore? Okay, so uh, this week on Critically Reclaimed, we decided to take a look uh, at the vast library of Tubi. And our... Tubi, the the trashy video store of the streaming services. It is also, and I think this is worth noting, uh, it is also run by Fox. Not the Fox that Disney bought. The Fox leftover. Yeah, it's it's part of the Fox News machine, right? And the downside of Tubi, the upside of Tubi is that they have so many things that that are not available on any other streaming service. The downside, and this is something you may want to consider before you really invest a lot in your time on Tubi, is that... All of their ad buys go to that Fox. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you're going to see ads for like their political their, their, leanings. Their, like, yeah, yeah their, their right wing talk shows. I didn't get any shows, of those so. when I was watching this week's film, so mm-hmm. that's good. But like, yeah, yeah, it can happen and it can be it can be a problem, but it's a choice you can make. And mm-hmm. so in any case, this week, the film that our patrons chose and it's quite fitting because we're currently knee deep in noir vember <laughs> which is a yearly event on film twitter where people and and uh, turner classic movies uh where we like to explore film noirs and the vast history thereof uh this is a film that's considered one of the best modern noirs and i had never seen it before and i am so glad i finally got around to before the devil knows you're dead do you need money? It's a serious crime. It's not as serious as you might think. What are you thinking? Don't ask, don't tell. It's a jewelry store, a mom and pop operation. <laughs> you ain't never done this before. Get a gun. You get a toy gun. There's no shooting. You do the driving, I do the thing. Right, 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 right. Stewart. She's what, 60, 70? Don't touch anything. Don't say anything. He's blind as a bat. Look at me. Blind as a bat. Easiest money what we get. That's mom and dad's story. Uh, They explain the title in the opening crawl. Um, It's uh, an old Irish saying. May you be in heaven 30 minutes before the devil knows you're dead. Yeah. You you hoodwinked the devil. Clearly you were meant to go to hell. Yes. But somehow you've snuck your way out of that and made your way into heaven and you've been there for 30 minutes already. Thank God the devil is a a bad bureaucrat. Just the paperwork is uh, not in order. I'm guessing like 30 minutes means like you're in the clear. It's like if you're well, in, if you're in heaven for like a minute, well, then you the, get up. The to devil heaven. can still grab you. You get up to heaven. You're in line. Uh, you got to go see Saint Peter. <laughs> yes, Saint Peter. Okay, it could have been Paul. There are two P names, and, be, and Peter's just like uh, 
all right, what did you do? And everyone's just like, uh, I took the Lord's name in vain 8,293 times, and I lied twice. And Vader's like, eh, good enough. Come on in. But if you haven't gotten to that phase, by the time the devil finds out, he can just run right up there, pluck you out of line, and just say, hey, Peter, this one's mine. And Peter would be like, "Take hey, hey, they're not in heaven yet. It's not my jurisdiction. Cool. It's a weird border town kind of vibe border it's called purgatory i suppose well, i suppose um, um this is a film by uh master filmmaker sydney lumet uh who has made some of the mo- best movies more, ever made more classics than some filmmakers have made films uh he, uh, he started his film career uh, in the late 1950s with mm-hmm. 12 angry men which is one of the great american films mm-hmm. uh, i think uh it, it's it should be required viewing for any adult in the United States. Uh, but uh, uh, he, but he, he's gone on to make dozens upon dozens of films, some of which are still held up as some of the best movies ever made. Let's let's do a quick uh, a quick rundown of some of the more notable films mm-hmm. of Sidney Lumet's uh, filmography. Uh, so obviously, first off the bat, Twelve Angry Men, considered an American classic, yeah. first film, bada bing. He'd worked extensively in the theater before that. Made a great debut. Excuse me. Uh, we've also got yeah, that... a long day's journey into night. We've also got we did uh... a thriller called Failsafe uh, mm-hmm. before. Uh, it was about nuclear uh, nuclear bomb crisis before mm-hmm. Doctor Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did uh, the incredible undercover cop classic Serpico. Uh, he did one of the great murder mystery films, Murder on the Orient Express. He did one of the great bank heist slash hostage crisis movies, Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, he did one of the best films ever made about the media network. By the way, Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, and Network, each successive year. So it was just... That's a, yeah. a, a no, notable period in his career. Uh, he did uh, the musical The Wiz, which admittedly was a weird choice for him. I think even he admitted he probably wasn't the best choice for yeah, it. But uh, the, the verdict... Oh, uh, God, the verdict is so good. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, the Oscar-nominated Running on Empty, one of River Phoenix's best performances. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and his final film uh, in 2007 is a film that ended up on a lot of uh, best-of-the-year lists. Uh, it's got an incredible in, in cast. In a notable year. 2007 oh, yeah. was a pretty great year for a really cinema. good year for film. Uh, but yeah, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead uh, stars Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke as brothers. Philip Seymour Hoffman is in real estate. He's actually doing rather well for himself. Ethan Hawke is a divorced uh, dad who is completely on the outs financially. Uh, but Phil Seymour Hoffman also owes a lot of money for a variety of reasons as well. And they scheme to rob their parents' jewelry store. Uh, and it goes really wrong, really badly. Mm-hmm. The film co-stars uh, Marissa Tomei and Albert Finney. That is a fantastic right. cast. Yeah, Albert Finney plays their dad. Uh, Marissa Tomei plays uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's girlfriend, who we learned very... Uh, wife. Or wife, excuse yeah. me, uh, who is having an affair with Ethan Hawke. Um, yeah. Ethan Hawke is sort of uh, sort of this wasteoid. He's always sort of screwed everything up. Philip Seymour Hoffman has managed to make some money. He's also extorting money from his own business. Yeah. Uh, Albert Finney, uh, we'll learn later in the movie, has always favored Ethan Hawke mm-hmm. and is not proud of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. This is, uh, this is one of those perfect storm movies where... Uh, Everything was like crappy underneath the surface of this family, and then once something breaks, it's mm. just a domino effect, and everything starts completely collapsing in on itself. Before yeah. we get into the nuts and bolts of "Before the Devil Knows You're Dead," I really do want to talk about Sydney Lumet for a minute because I think one of the things that keeps Sydney Lumet out of uh, uh, sort of the mouths of certain cinephiles mm-hmm. is because even though he made a bunch of incredible movies, he doesn't really have like a singular. Especially not a flashy style. Yeah. His, his, uh, well, his style is to often disappear into the story and not call attention to it. He, he's one of those filmmakers like Stephen Frears or to maybe a different degree, John Carpenter. Mm. Don uh, Siegel comes to mind. Yeah. The, yeah. Who uh, 
are more interested in sort of telling the story well mm. and are, are such naturals with the craft that they don't bring any flash. Yeah. Like, what what can you say that's the same about all of Stephen Freer's movies? That, well, you can't really point to anything. Like, they're well like there's told. A, like, there's kind of, might be kind of a mood to his films, but he, yeah, it doesn't but, have, like, a style. But, but, like, you, but it's hard to compare the mood of even with two movies starring John Cusack, The Grifters and High Fidelity. Mm-hmm. Those movies feel completely different. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. He, he's interested in uh, various genres. He's interested yeah. in sort of efficiency of storytelling. And I think that's the same of Sidney Lumet. He just sort of has this knack yeah. for filmmaking. Uh, he, he knows where to put the camera. He knows how this story needs to be told. Mm. He just sort of has this natural ability. And I think a lot of that comes from his background in theater. He understands that the characters need to drive things. Yeah, there's, uh, a, there's a great book written by Sidney Lumet called mm. Making Movies. And it is... Much like Sidney Lumet's films, it's very economical. Like it's not like this really dense six hundred page mm. film. It's actually pretty. It's a pretty quick read. Uh, but I think it should be required reading, not just in film schools, but for critics, because I really do think he has a really good bead on how the filmmaking process is about getting everyone on board to tell the same story, mm. and that's really vital. And once you understand why Sidney Lumet found that was so important, you start to realize why so many movies kind of collapse in the studio system because not everyone's making the same film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's really quite genius. Um, what is your favorite Sidney Lumet film, by the way? Uh, well, I mean, 12 Angry Men is, is, okay. is one of my favorites. All but right. um, g- g- Give me your number two. You've already, <laughs> you've already, everyone, gu- everyone's already, heard of 12 I already Men. gushed about that one. Um, golly, I, I like so many of them. You know what? I saw a movie of his uh, called Power, which he did oh. in the 80s, which is about, one. yeah, it's a, not not as well known. Um I actually kind of backed into Sidney Lumet because I I had seen 12 Angry Men when I was a kid, but I didn't really catch up with some of his better known uh, films from the 1970s until later in my life. Mm. Uh, so, like, I think the the first film of his I saw was 12 Angry Men. The second film of his I saw was Critical Care with James Spader oh, wow. in the 90s. Uh, but, and by at that point, it's like Sidney Lumet made a movie... And nobody really like cared. Yeah, but I, I found that to be really unusual because of sort of its its character driven story. I was in, I was th- expecting something a little bit like quirkier, or this was the time of like the indie drama, so it was going to be like a little bit more stylized. Or the dialogue was going to be really sort of snappy in the Richard Linklater, mm-hmm. Kevin Smith sort of way. And uh, I ended up finding this really kind of kind of sedate human drama set mm-hmm. in a hospital. Uh, and it was from there I said, okay, Sidney Lumet, I've heard of this guy. Let's start delving. And I, I think I went straight to Dog Day Afternoon after that. Dog Day Afternoon, yeah, Afternoon is... Dog Day Afternoon is pretty unassailable. It crackles with energy. Yeah. I think the one thing about it that's that's kind of not great is... Um, and it's and it's mostly, we can say this with, with absolute confidence in retrospect. I think at the time they were being relatively progressive. But um, there's a casting decision that today most people would kind of say, oh, you probably should have gotten someone who was actually from that background. I don't want to ruin it because it's, okay. it's kind of like a, tw- a twist in the story. Uh, but, like, there's a casting decision yeah. that I think the person does a very good job, but uh, it's also it, it's it's also be, not who we would cast this to, to be frank, it's perfectly tasteful, especially for the 1970s. For the 1970s, it's absolutely progressive, but you look at it today and go, eh, maybe it could have been done better. But regardless, it is... Absolutely alive that movie in mm. in a way that is just. You mentioned that his work can be kind of sedate. My favorite uh, Cindy Lumet film is The Verdict, which is a very sedate motion picture. Mm. Um, and that's about uh, Paul Newman playing a has been down on his luck lawyer uh, who decides to just one time, just at the end of his career, really try. <laughs> this time, I'm going to really try, and he's going to. Uh, 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 take on the uh, the medical institution, and um, that is maybe the best legal film. It, maybe Twelve Angry Men, I suppose. <laughs> but like, it's he's done at least two of the best yeah. legal films ever made. I didn't like, see his incredible. film Find Me Guilty. The oh film yeah, yeah. Made with Vin Diesel. Yeah. Um, the, I didn't see he, the one he either, made yeah, several legal yeah. legal dramas. Uh, Serpico is one of the great all time cop movies. Uh, yeah, just astounding. So he's he's a filmmaker who's worked within a lot of different genres, and I think he brings a lot of understanding about the human condition to his films. I realize how broad that sounds, but like he's always interested in where his characters are coming from. They're never there to serve a plot point. 
the characters are the characters and as they are interwoven throughout his movies they affect each other Hmm. but it never feels like they're just there to tell a story it feels like they're here to live their lives and i think that gives specifically before the devil knows you're dead a really incredible power here because this is actually a very tightly plotted film noir about a heist gone horribly wrong Hmm. But it's also a spectacular character piece, and this quickly has moved up to the top of, near the top anyway, of my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I miss him so much. Seeing a movie was... from his I, I hadn't seen before hmm. just made me just remember, he was just one of the great actors, damn it. He, he was so talented. He was really, really good at playing... Um, incredibly sympathetic yet incredibly horrible people like, yeah. like he played that type of a role several times yeah and uh he's a a complete scumbag in this yeah. uh this this is what you might call scuzz cinema <laughs> which I, I think refers more to a particular wave of films in the 90s but mm. uh i think it's this I, is, i've often heard it referred to like wave of films in like the 80s and just terms of like the aesthetic like mm. i've heard basket case referred to as scuzz cinema i don't know oh, if right. I don't know if your definition is the same as mine. Scuzz, uh, I, as as I know it to be defined, refers to like a, a certain uh, subgenre of uh, films about like low lives and criminals. Okay, this is about low lives and criminals who are have all put on the face of being respectable and mm. are trying to keep on the mask of being respectable as it slides off of their faces. Uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman seem is has spent his entire life, his character has spent his entire life trying to uh, impress his father, essentially, by earning money and becoming a respectable person when, at his heart, he is a criminal and he's also an addict Mm -hmm. and doesn't really have much hope or ambition for his life beyond this sort of abstract... Uh, veneer of respectability. Well, he has this abstract veneer of respectability that he wants to maintain at all costs. But yeah, the actual things that drive him and give him purpose are theft, uh, hedonism, mm-hmm. uh, and he, it's interesting. Like a lot of the, the first scene in the movie is him having sex with Marissa Tomei. Mm-hmm. They're married, and we find out that they're on vacation in Brazil. And they've been married for a while, and the you know the the spark is gone. Mm. But while they're on vacation, they feel much more amorous than usual, and they're saying like, "Oh, this is great. We should have this all the time." And for a while, you can convince yourself that he's trying to steal all this money, trying to uh, uh, get away with this big crime because what he wants to do is live free of responsibility and family so that he can live his best life with his wife. But I think what's most important there is that the first time you see him in that scene, he's having sex with Marissa Tomei, but he's looking at himself in the mirror and looking at how hmm. great he feels. Well, there's, there's It's all about him. Yeah, there's it's very mir- selfish. Mirrors on either side of him, in fact. Yeah. So there's like an infinite versions of him. Yeah, so he's not doing this to be happy with a partner. Hmm. And I th- I really love Marissa Tomei's character in here. Like initially, it seems as though she's a little underwritten because um, Philip Seymour. We see it from Philip Seymour Hoffman's perspective, and he just doesn't listen to her. And then hmm. we see it from Ethan Hawke's perspective, and she's almost a little like a temptress for him, but she's also very open. She just says, listen, I'm in a loveless marriage right now and you're having sex. Mm. I'm having sex with his brother and that's all this is going to be. And I'm happy with this. This is fine. We meet on Thursdays and we have sex. Mm. And he's like, but I love you. And she's like, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, do, don't ruin this. And over the course of the film, I love how a character that seems kind of underwritten, you realize it's underwritten because the story is told from the perspective of men mm. who don't care about her. Yeah, they might they care what they can get from her, self respect, ego, possession, whatever. But they're not listening to her, and she's in her own tragedy. And that just by the end of the movie, that feels so complete in a way that I think even some really great film noirs often really underserve their their women characters. Uh, so that's really wonderful. Um. The scheme is uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman has uh, uh, enlisted Ethan Hawke to rob their parents' jewelry store. 
Uh, and he tells him, okay, here's what you're going to do. You know, you know the layout. We're going to, you're going to go in there when their one employee is there. You're going to put on and, a mask. You're going to hide and, yourself. And you're she's, gonna get she's a, uh, like an infirm older woman yeah. who, who wouldn't think to like defend herself. Exactly. And you're going to, and he says, and he just tells him, you will get a fake gun. Hmm. You will not get a real gun. You will get a fake gun. You go in there, you'll be intimidating, you'll take the money, you'll take the jewelry. I've got a fence worked out because her family's been in the jewelry business for forever. And then that'll will still like five hundred thousand dollars. That'll cover your back alimony payments and get you back on your feet, and that'll cover all the money I've been embezzling from work. Hmm. And I'll be able to run off with my wife and I'll live this fantasy life, which is probably completely unattainable, but it's what I've latched on to. It it's so tragic from the start because you know that this is doomed to fail. Yeah. Not they're just, not solving not their problems. You, yeah. they're, 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 yeah, it's, this is something that when I was a kid, mm. I would see all of these movies about people with money problems. And they would inevitably try to solve those money problems by you know, killing their spouse or robbing a bank or conning someone mm. out. And there was almost inevitably, because you know a lot of the older movies about crime I watched reproduction code, but even still, there's always a moral element to a lot of these things. Um it almost always destroyed them. Maybe mm. one person got out okay if they were lucky, but usually everyone was destroyed. And it was always some like somebody you didn't expect. It mm. was either a, a double cross by somebody who was smarter than everybody else, yeah. or it was an innocent who managed to sort of drift through without being touched yeah. by the, the vice. Without giving anything away, a great modern version of that is Uncut Gems. Oh, there you go. Uncut yeah. Gems is fantastic, by the way. It's, uh, an, it's an anxiety attack. I of a know. Movie I normally is. don't gravitate towards those, but it's really good. Mm. Um, but uh, there'd be a great double feature with this, I think. But um, uh, as an adult, understanding just what a burden debt can be, mm. what a burden it can be to constantly worry about where are you going to, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to take care of your family? How are you going to keep a roof over your head? What's going to happen when you're completely self reliant? Uh, a movie that can actually make you feel the weight of that is hard to do because so often they're just using it as an excuse to get to the heist. Yeah. Here, I feel the weight. I don't, and I don't necessarily sympathize with them because, you know, Ethan Hawke is way mm. behind on his alimony and that sucks and Philip Seymour Hoffman is a piece of shit. Yeah. And, the and, there's a, and there's an element to most heist movies that has never really sat with me well. What's that? Because uh, these people go through this uh, great deal of, of trouble and planning to plan like the perfect heist and then they have to, you know, split split whatever they stole, mm-hmm. and they always walk away with like fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, it's like enough to, enough enough to buy a car, maybe. Yeah, it's like I think it was even in like Army of the Dead. It's like, hey, how'd you like to make two hundred grand? It's like, okay, two hundred grand. That's I could put a down payment on a house. Yeah, it's like that's, it's enough to. It's it, not it, enough to retire on. You that, know, it, it's well, never enough to retire. There's on. two fantasies. There's the there's you, uh, still enough to retire on. You'll never have to work again for the rest of your life. Hmm. But there's also the fantasy of this will solve your immediate financial problems. Yeah, this will like pay off all of your college loans. This will pay off. Uh, your car. This will help you keep your house. Mm. You know, this will help you keep your family business. That kind of thing. Yeah. This will pay off the short term money. But there's always that thing when I'm thinking about. Like, listen, I know that like the system isn't great and bureaucracy is weird and people get away with shit all the time. Uh, but at the same time, let's say all of a sudden you've you, you've been behind on your payments for like a year, mm. and they're gonna foreclose on your house and you owe like. $100,000 and then you pay it off in cash they're not gonna I, mean, I realize the bank just wants the money but like that's on a record at that point surely someone's gonna ask where'd you get that money dude where'd you get audited and shit like where are you gonna, be, where are you, where are you gonna say that came from like oh we, we looked under the sofa we left, uh, yeah. we left $100,000 under the sofa my bad and, and I wonder where be, that went and that's gotta be a, it's gotta be a great relief to pay off that debt mm-hmm. but it I, I don't like that they're sort of they're they're debt free now and they're just sort of in a position where they'll just get into more debt. It's not like they have a job at the end of it. Well, because, because they only did one heist. Well, because and here's well, there's two things here, and I think uh. one is a very real commentary about the way that debt keeps people impoverished. Yes, and debt and enormous interest rates, particularly student loan debt uh, and medical bills debt, and all of these kinds of debt are uh, this incredible 
heavy weight Mm -hmm. that we put on the poor and the middle class. And it, unless you are able to get a windfall or you get very, very lucky with your entrepreneurialism, uh, it's extremely hard to get out of that and become comfortably rich. Hmm. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. And there's actually been like studies about this. You know, they say like money can't buy happiness. There have been studies that say like, actually, once you get to the point where you don't have to worry about like bills keeping a roof, all, yeah. yeah, once you have to, uh, my bills are being paid, the food, there's food in the fridge. I don't have to worry about keeping a roof over my family's head. Mm. That's a lot of happiness. It's after that. Yeah. It doesn't buy happiness. Like after your basic needs are met, money doesn't dramatically affect your happiness. But a lot of people would kill to be at that, what we would consider Mm. a living wage, bare minimum. So being able to get back to zero is kind of a fantasy in and of itself. But to your point, and I think this is a movie that very much has that in mind, they might have an immediate quick fix for the problem right in front of them, mm. but they haven't solved what's wrong with them as people. Yeah. yeah. Ethan Hawke is still a complete, he's spineless. He has mm. no drive. He has no agency. He has, he's a, he's a, a really, I, I don't think I've ever seen Ethan Hawke play a character quite this pathetic. Yeah. And he's, he's played some, Kind of sniveling characters yeah. in the past, but yeah, this one he's just a, a callow coward. Yeah. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is extremely broken, and I mm. think without going into heavy detail, we see how his father holding him to an impossible standard has driven him to succeed in one way, but rebel against that in another, and that has become this like perfect storm well, of, and how of it's, tragedy just brewing within him. Well, and how it's really hollowed him out, and there is an amazing scene mm-hmm. about two-thirds of the way through this movie after yeah. he has a conversation with Albert Finney. He gets oh, back so in the good. car uh, with Marisa Tomei, and he's driving home, and... He and he just breaks down. Yeah, he just he well, just because, he, and he yells. He's just it's full of scene. unbelievable sadness and fury. It's this incredible bit because just before this, he had had a conversation with his father, Albert Finney, and they just they've been through a lot. We're not going to go through all the details of this one. Oh. I think because uh, it's there's so a lot good. to and, discover on this. Yeah, one, it, yeah. It, this is there's no foregone conclusion here. But like, um, they've been through a lot, and Albert Finney has a conversation with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he says, "Listen." I know it seemed like I always favored your brother. He was the baby. He needed a little bit more emotional attention. And I wasn't there enough for you. And mm. I feel bad about that. I know I wasn't a great father to you, but I love you. Mm. And Phil Seymour Hoffman throws that right back in his face. And then the next scene is him driving in the car. And you see him realize that's everything I always wanted my dad to say to me. <laughs> and I just threw it back in his face. And I'm mad at him because yes that's exactly what i wanted to hear but it also doesn't make up for anything mm. and he's just completely has no idea what to do with what just happened to him mm. something good just happened to him and he has no idea what to do with it because he's his, his soul is so full of bile at that point yeah yeah it's 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 and i'll say this that albert finney uh is a bad father yeah he, he favored one child over the other he yeah. didn't nurture them in, a, in a, the right kind of way and, he, and, it was... and when, he, when we say he favored ethan hawk mm-hmm. when we see him as adults he doesn't treat ethan hawk that good to begin no with. he he doesn't really treat either of them very well uh, something happens where he becomes obsessed with solving a crime and that's sort of like where his story is going yeah uh and he, he becomes sort of a, retreats essentially into his own world so yeah. we actually get to understand that these two broken men are the result of broken parenting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, emotionally distant uh, parenting is is, a real problem. And it tends to be very generational because it's how we learn to interact Mm. and how we learn what parenting is and what family life is like, whether we want to fall back into that pattern or not. It's the pattern we know. And this is a movie that really understands that. And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm so glad Philip Seymour Hoffman didn't have kids. Like Ethan Hawk, <laughs> Ethan Hawk's kid hates him, but at the very least is the mother played by Amy Ryan, uh, who's always great. Uh, she has removed Ethan Hawk from that situation. Mm. You're a bad dad. You you're not. It's not like you're abusive. You're just mm. not present, and yeah. you're not helping, and you don't prioritize us. And that's uh, that's a similar thing. He's not doing it the same way Philip Seymour yeah, Hoffman or, or Albert Finney are, but he's still doing it. He's still Ethan, keeping uh, emotional distance from the people he cares about the most. Yeah, Ethan Ethan Hawke, um, 
rather underrated actor. I mean, he's, he's acclaimed a lot, but he is amazing. He can play so many different. It's weird. He has that, such such a wonderful range as a performer. It's weird that people don't uh, talk about how he's like. Wasn't he even nominated for like three Academy Awards? Like one for screenwriting. Yeah, like uh, yeah. for for uh, the before movies, I think before uh, Sunset, he was he's nominated for re- that. He's really, really good. He's nominated in Boyhood. for Training Day. He was nominated he's, for Boyhood. Uh, he's he's amazing in First Reformed, which is a movie yeah. that yeah. everyone needs to see. Yeah, um, you're a bigger fan than I am, but he's really, really I, I good love in First it. Reformed. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's like the modern Diary of a Country Priest. You know, movie I, I think he's amazing in Sinister. <laughs> Sinister is a horror movie that relies almost entirely on Ethan Hawke giving a believable performance, yeah. and he nails he, it. He's he, great. He carries Sinister. Uh, yeah. My favorite scene in Sinister is the the conversation with the cop. <laughs> we're we're good. James Ransone, he's so good. Yeah, uh, Ethan Hawke is like he's finally starting to believe that. May, is there a demon? Is there a ghost? Something in my house? And yeah. he's trying to confirm that with the cop. It's like you don't you don't really believe in yeah. all this Re- ghost reassure stuff. Me, yeah, right? really, yeah, we don't really. This is this isn't real, right? And the cop says, "Yes, yes, it's all real. I believe all of this stuff. Are you kidding? I'm terrified." <laughs> Just sort of pushes Ethan Hawke over the edge a little bit, but in. in Ethan Hawke, uh, when he was younger, was sold as sort of like a, a roguish sex symbol. He was yeah. uh, look a, at him from reality a idol, yeah, where yeah. he was seen as like the absolute sexiest option for mm. Winona Ryder. And then you watch that movie now, and you realize he's a dick in that movie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's not a good person. <laughs> uh, but uh, in in this film, you know, when he made it in two thousand seven, you can tell that he he's still sort of carrying that with him. He's sort of like this former teen idol who's yeah, he probably completely lost charm his luster. For most of his life. Yeah. yeah. So he's used to sort of charming his way through a situation and you can say that nobody's buying it anywhere anymore. Yeah. And he gets frustrated like with that. And then he gets frustrated again because he knows he's got nothing else. Yeah. Um, he's just so delightfully pathetic. Mm. And, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman has typically played that kind of a character. Mm. He's sort of sad sacks. The, uh, the person who's not confident. He's played a lot of really kind of quiet, reserved characters throughout his mm. career. Uh, but he's such an amazing actor. Here he's playing the intimidating one. Yeah, and it's, I, it's always fun to see him do who's, that. Yeah, who's got a black inky void where his soul has you, to, you can always, once it, was. It's so interesting to see, like, because Phil Hoffman is just easily one of the most versatile actors. Mm. And he's also an actor with a rather specific look. And it's very common for an actor to get sort of pigeonholed by... Their look, you're the pretty mm. one. You're uh, the big funny guy, yeah, that kind of thing. And there's and, some, some actors who are uh, have a lot of range and are really uh, really talented, but mm. because they look a certain way, they're cast in certain kinds of roles. Exactly. Uh, and I think Philip Seymour Hoffman nimbly avoided that. I think through sheer force of talent, mm. because you see even some of his early stuff, like he's. The fun, sexy guy in Twister. <laughs> yeah. But then, like, a year or two the, later... The, 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 the flirty, yeah. noisy, funny guy. And yeah. then a year or two later, his breakout role was as this really, really depressed uh, boom operator in 70s porn and mm. Boogie Nights. And I'm really... I just love how so many filmmakers saw Philip Seymour Hoffman and realized just how versatile he was. Because... You know, you know, a movie he's great in. I really like the movie. It's maybe not the best movie ever, but you know, a movie he's like really fucking intimidating in Mission Impossible Three. Mission Impossible Three is a, an example as to um, how those types of roles are written and how they're typically played mm-hmm. in, in like mainstream Hollywood action films. Yeah, we have villains who tend to chew scenery. They're larger than life. They're from James Bond movies, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and they have like a lot of character and a lot of personality and just a capacity, a gleeful capacity for evil. They're all playing Batman villains from the 1960s yeah. Yeah. on some level. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman looked at a villain character and said, what does an evil man look like? What does a man who wants to commit murder look like in the real world? Uh-huh. And he played it that way. Well, he, 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 he and uh, so when, when he's, ter- when he's like really uh, terrifyingly angry at Ethan mm-hmm. Hunt, he's just like, I'm, I'm going to kill her. You believe him in that yeah, moment. Well, he, he, he actually, you could, you could say he almost that he, he isn't, but you could say almost that he's underplaying it. He is not milking the scene. He's not trying to be intimidating. Well, he's he just not overplaying well, But this, this is what's cool about that mm. performance is that he is, he knows. He's, he's not compensating for anything. He's not insecure. He's incredibly secure. He knows he's powerful. Mm. He knows he can. He knows he's above the law. He knows he he's the most intimidating person mm. in the room. And who else is in this room? Ethan Hunt. He is not intimidated at all. Mm. He can just calmly 
lay everything out, and it's menacing mm. to know someone who has nothing to prove. They've already proven it to themselves. Uh -huh. And that can be very inspiring when you meet someone who's like really upbeat and wants to use that to like make the world a better place. <laughs> but when you meet someone who's using it to make the world a worse place and doesn't give a shit about that, mm. that's terrifying. And there, there's a, a scene near the end where I think it's it's Michelle Monaghan who yeah. plays uh, his wife in that one. Yeah. And... Um, all, all of his evil plans have gone badly because Ethan Hunt is an action star and he's yeah. blown everything up. And But Michelle Monaghan has survived and he looks at her. She's like laying on a, on a street outside yeah. of a car. And Ethan Hunt is over there and he just grabs her by the shirt and as calmly as ever says, Come here. I'm going to kill you in front of him. And like, yeah. like, like, like it's a it's chore for him. And it's the most terrifying thing, thing yeah. yeah, you'd see in like an action picture. Yeah. But then he'll also be in a position where he can blow up. Like his, his villain in Punch Drunk Love is <laughs> just as intimidating and shitty, but he's, that's an insecure but villain. He's an and insecure someone, villain, and, yeah. but he's also, that's being played for a bit of a giggle. Right. But you can see there's a little mm. moment, there's actually a little moment in Before the Devil Knows Your Dad mm. where I'm, I, it came out after Punch Drunk Love. There's a little oh, moment yeah. at the end, uh, towards the end of The Poor Devil There's a Dead, when Philip Seymour Hoffman has completely had enough of Ethan Hawke's shit. Wow. <laughs> and he just tells him to shut, sh shut up! Mm. And he does it exactly like the bad guy from Punch <laughs> Drunk Love. And it's just... Shut, 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 shut up! There's When you can get Philip Seymour Hoffman into a screaming match telling someone to shut up, it's the best thing ever. The best scene in The Master is when him and... Uh, oh, they're in the prison Joaquin cells. Phoenix yeah. are just, they're in adjacent prison cells, and they have completely had it with each other, <laughs> and they hate each other, and they're just saying, fuck you, over and over and over and over and over again. And it never he finds every nuanced way to deliver that simple line of dialogue. The, the Master is weirdly brilliant movie. Um, so it, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. Uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, um, we're, we're trying to talk about sort of the broader careers well, of these actors because this is this is a tragedy of of, yeah. uh, of massive proportions, of Greek proportions, of, yeah. about characters who are missing pieces of their souls and have no ways of filling them. And so much of that is based on performance that we really have to really talk about what the actors do and what they're capable of. And this is a great acting showcase for literally everyone involved. Mm. Like, everyone is amazing. Even Michael yeah. Shannon has a small role in this. It's, he's of like course in two he's scenes. amazing. Yeah. Of course he's amazing. He's Michael Shannon, for God's sake. He got an Oscar nomination for being in two scenes in Revolutionary Road. He's in like two fucking scenes in that movie. He got an Oscar nomination. He's incredible. He, he's great in uh, Cecil Be Demented, even. He's great uh, in The Night Before. I remember there was actually a very brief, but very earnest attempt by some critics to say like, you know who should get an Oscar nomination? Michael Shannon for The Night Before as the quasi-magical drug dealer. He's great in yeah, that film. Uh, and all of this comes from an assured director who has clearly... He's made a lot of movies, and I think he's best known for film, but I think uh, theater is where his heart is, which means he is directing immediate scenes as if the actor's in the room with you. Yeah. And he wants the performance to lead, and he wants the characters to lead. He's a very character-driven director, and... Even though something like uh, Murder on the Orient Express mm -hmm. is uh, it's a murder mystery, so it's very yeah. plot driven, he gives it to his wonderfully eccentric cast. Yeah. And uh, another Albert Finney film where Albert Finney played Hercule Poirot as kind of this weirdo. Um, mm. he, even when he's, ma you know, he's making a comedy or he's making a drama, he's letting assured actors do what they know is important for the scene. I, uh, He's not trying to get in their way, and that makes for a stronger film, I think. I, it's something that is actually like a hard lesson to learn, I think, when you're um, mm -hmm. learning to make movies. When I was in film school, uh, I took a production class, and one of the best lessons I ever learned in that was uh, there was basically the professor, who was also a uh, producer and filmmaker, um, he brought everyone out. Okay, so we got a short scene. Now, I want to give everyone a moment here. Everyone is a small class. Everyone in the class, imagine you're on set and you're ready to, you have to shoot this scene today. I want to see, like, what's the, you got five minutes. What's the stuff? You're not supposed to finish the scene, obviously. Huh. But what's your first five minutes look like? Hmm. When you're on set, the actors are here. You got your camera crew, etc. What do you do? Every single person, myself included, to a T, Worried about trying to figure out what the right coverage is, mm -hmm. where's going to be the line of action, etc. And then straight to the camera person. Went straight yeah. to the camera. And at the end of it all, 
there's uh, there's no right way to do it, but I think this was a good lesson. The teacher said, "Okay," and then the end. Here, here is what I would do: go straight to the actors. Go straight <laughs> to the actors. Let's talk about the scene. Mm. What are you, how are you feeling right now? Where would you sit if you entered the scene? Let's make this natural because if all of the camera work supports the performance, it doesn't need to be flashy. Yeah, yeah, I, and I that was, was a good lesson. Weirdly, it's not the only lesson, but it's a good lesson. Weirdly, the, the film I was thinking about while I was watching uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead was uh, a film I reviewed recently called Last Night in Soho, uh, directed oh, yeah. by Edgar Wright, who most assuredly went to the camera person first. I he's think that a lot kind of, that of a director. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he, a lot of those scenes designed yeah, going he, in. He's much more interested in where the camera is, the colors of the scene. And neither of these is... You know, the right or the wrong way to oh, make yeah. a movie. Alfred Hitchcock notoriously like mm. stuck to he his, likes the, his, the storyboards. Yeah, yeah, he he would do storyboards in advance, and he would do the storyboards, and God help you if you switched them. Like that was, and it worked. Mm. That worked for him, but it's not the only way to do it. Mm. And uh, but, and yeah, uh, there's. I feel like uh, when you're focused on the flash, there's mm. probably unless you're incredibly assured. Yeah. There's going to be more of a chance that you're uh, going to make a shallower film. Well, it's also uh, it's also sometimes the movie you're making can dictate that. Like well, Evil yeah. Dead 2, we can work a little bit more with the camera because so much of it is just Bruce Campbell losing his mind in a cabin. Also, with uh, this... I wouldn't call that a particularly deep movie. It's exactly just incredibly fun to watch. Exactly. But... The style is the reason why we're there. But mm-hmm. when you're telling a story with actual drama and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be humanistic, you do want to make sure that you devote energy to that because yeah. that's got to be, we have to recognize it. I think that's the great power. There's actually a lot of really subtly beautiful camera work and editing and stylistic choices in this movie, but they don't usually call attention to themselves. No, the, what uh, calls attention to itself is just how richly detailed the characters, the performance and the way that they're terrible decisions, which I believe every single one of them made it hard mm-hmm. to do in a noir. Especially one like this, where it's like about a heist kind of falling yeah, apart. The, the, none of none of the bad decisions feels like a okay. contrivance for the plot. Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes it just feels like these things happen so that the plot can continue. Here it feels like people who are not good at things made bad decisions, and I believe every single one. Hmm. Uh, towards the climax of this movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman starts making worse and worse decisions. And well, every he, single he reaches decision this he... level of desperation yeah. where he just starts doing like the, the most yeah. horrible things. And then he'll have like this incredibly quiet scene with his wife. And it would seem almost that those things are at odds, but they're not. Yeah. There's a, a moment in the middle of this sort of um, yeah. whirlwind of bad decisions he's making where he has, a, he's having a conversation with his wife and he, he just in the middle of it says, do you need a ride? Not out yeah. of, not out of like, necessarily caring but it's like okay this is something i can take care of right yeah like this is this is he's not he accepts what's Mm. going on right now and it's just a matter of just solving the immediate problem and there is a one stylist there's a a couple stylistic flourishes though um it's non-chronological we skip back and forth and we see different scenes from different characters perspectives multiple times Mm -hmm. and uh when we switch time frames and when we switch to a new character uh, Sidney Lumet did something that would have felt really natural in a 70s film and somehow mm. makes it work in 2007. Yeah. Where he ticks back and forth between the two scenes with a loud ticking motion. Yeah. And we see two stills flashing back and forth mm-hmm. uh, really quickly. Usually and with then different we start, color timing. Like yeah. And, and then one's we, brighter, one's not. And yeah. we skip into uh, the next time frame and then we start following a different character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is that's an incredibly stylized thing. It's actually to, to the showiest study. thing in the whole yeah. movie. Yeah, it's the one thing where they're calling attention to the artificiality of the film. But it's not the thing that you're going to take away from before the devil knows no. you're dead. It's not the sort I've of about that style that because it's not a propulsive story. It's like mm-hmm. I said, it's a character story, and it's about how they move forward through these time frames. There is a, a younger hothead who could have filmed the same material with much more of those kinds of quick edits, and. Would that have been a good film? Perhaps. Mm-hmm. But that kind of film wouldn't have really delved into uh, just sort of how how horribly unhappy these people are. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the best films of 2007. Oh, yeah. This, this is, is a wonderful, film. wonderful film. I'm mad I hadn't. Yeah, had you seen this one before? Yes, I saw okay, this, so I saw this in theaters when okay, it came I out. I missed it, and I'm so glad I've seen it now. Luca wants to join the podcast. Uh, hey, Lu- buddy. Luca's climbing up on your lap. Yeah, he's so cute. I like uh, Sydney Lumet. I like, I like movies. Okay. You you go at it, buddy. We'll watch Cats later. 
Um, but um, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> the one more thing I want to talk about. Just there's something I want to talk about in regards to this very particular uh, breed of heist movie and film noir, where mm. the decision to commit a crime sets a wave in motion that ruins everything and everyone you've ever touched. Mm. There is something almost comically moralistic about that. Like it's it's so like ah the, the cr- just, crime doesn't pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. crime doesn't pay. It's, it's it's almost like a scare film really, but it's mm. so well done that you're like you believe it, but when you look at this as a as an entry in a genre of like something like I don't know, um a simple plan or blood simple or anytime someone just decides, okay, I've got problems, but if I commit a crime, I'll solve all of them. And surely I'm brilliant and I can get away with the perfect crime. Mm. And then by the end of the movie, everyone you've ever known is dead and it's your fault. <laughs> or something similar. Maybe not everyone's dead, but everyone's been ruined in some way. Um, I don't know how I feel about that sometimes. There's a part of that that almost feels... Like it, it, it ends up feeling almost like a religious parable in some ways, in well, a way that is, it can be satisfying. Hmm. I think here it works, but it can also be a little condescending. <laughs> like, like crime well, is don't... bad, but is it Jesus? Is it always that bad? I don't think so. Otherwise, there'd be no crime. Can you imagine if every time someone committed a crime, everyone they ever knew died? Well, there no would do it. There are so many films. Well, there are films of many, many, many films about yeah. career criminals, yeah. people who do heists on the regular. Yeah, who, not not about uh, the idea is, and it almost always ends like Scarface with everything going horribly not, wrong. Not, not necessarily. Sometimes they, they go on and they star in their own sequels. You know, the yeah. gen- gentlemen thieves and all the rest of that. We just saw. A red notice that kind of okay. film well that's there's a, you know, a, a light, I'm thinking more of these serious crime I suppose so there, there the are fluffy the one, light-hearted yeah. crime capers that yeah. kind of things that you know people who do commit heists on the regular and get away with it right. and we want them to because we like that they do that there's a great we speech. admire their their uh, ability yeah. to thumb their nose at the law rather yeah. than getting on the moral side of the law my, my, my one of my favorite speeches in any movie actually is at the end of the remake of the thomas crown affair which is really good it's really it, sexy it's fun I, I still i haven't seen that since the theaters and i remember I, not liking I, it so I, you're, I, you're getting you're, you're getting it. me to want to watch I, it again it's, it's stylish it's sexy it's escapist it's uh renee russo and pierce brosnan have really really great chemistry together and there's a bit at the end, because the whole thing is Pierce Brosnan is, he's a billionaire, but he also dabbles in art thievery because he's bored, mm. which is a much better rewrite than the original, because in the original, he's a, I think he's a millionaire, but regardless, he's a millionaire who decides to do bank heists. I don't respect you for doing bank heists. When you need more money? No, but there's a romance to art thievery, because it's all about the getting past high-tech systems and doing it with panache, and... um. At the end of the Thomas Crown Affair, the remake, without giving away exactly the ending, Dennis Leary plays a cop in that movie, and he says, you know... It was Dennis Leary, wasn't it? Yeah, Dennis Leary says, you know, before I was on this, like, art thievery case, like, the week before that, uh, I had to deal with, like, two homicides and, like, an abusive parent. Mm. If this guy wants to steal some swirls of paint, I'm not going to be that motivated. <laughs> like again, I, I yeah, okay, he shouldn't be doing that, but at the same time, I, I could only get so invested in that because this is not the worst crime in the world. Hmm. Um, and uh, there's a certain perspective there that I can appreciate. Uh, but yeah, in something like this, everything just goes so horribly wrong. It's almost it's it's. It's. I think uh, Ebert was talking about the uh, Anthony Minghella version of the Talented Mr. Ripley, which is a great movie. Also, his friend is also Yeah, really, really great. Um, and I remember him talking about how the end of that movie, or it's like towards the end of that movie, where Matt Damon has killed some people and is trying to, you know, keep people, keep like Philip Seymour Hoffman from finding out, and like there's hiding behind doors and like keeping bodies on the on ice and stuff. And Eber brought up something very accurate, which is that with just a slight adjustment to timing, this incredibly suspenseful sequence would be the funniest thing I've seen all year. Mm. There's a thin line, yeah, between suspense and absurdity. What, uh, what I would, what I would love to see is. Um... And this all comes from this sort of moralistic ground that noir takes, and noir is our moral fables. 
Yeah, they're they, they're mostly about amoral people, but as an mm. audience, we're usually not supposed to go like I approve of everything yeah. they're doing. And if they get away from away with it, it's like this kind of sardonic, yeah. cynical view of the, the world. world failed in some way. Yeah, Isn't like that the, a shame? You know, the, it's it's about sort of falling from grace. There is a, a good way to live, and these people aren't living it. And yeah. that, that's sort of the overall sense of film noir as a genre. Uh, they can be, that can be very exhilarating. Of course, we Absolutely. don't all, we don't we don't necessarily want to live in the good place. We want yeah. to be in in sort of the cool who, who, outside. Who doesn't, like, who doesn't love getting away with something like yes? I took yeah. the last cookie, and no one at work knows. <laughs> I, would, I would love to see a film where uh, there's uh, not too clever heist, like a guy who knows where um, like an armored car is going to park. Yeah, it's like in Groundhog Day. He just walks across the street and grabs a bag of money. Yeah, he just knows the timing. And, Boom. And the rest of the movie is. Him paying his bills, yeah, <laughs> like paying some, paying his kids' tuition. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really mundane stuff. Like just yeah, getting like, all that done. He doesn't get anything. Like he gets one fancy thing, but it's like a nice pair of shoes. Like something yeah. that's not even like all that ostentatious. Yeah, like someone who actually like uses the money oh. smartly because yeah. they always blow it and like, oh yes, yeah, so you buy yourself a Lamborghini. It's like, right, how are we gonna explain this? I had a party in Vegas. So yeah, like, I, no, I, I just I, spent it all on strippers. No, yeah, it's I like paid off my student loans. I paid off my no. parents mortgage i made sure that my car got a tune up and and there's never that moment of reckoning it's like where did you get all this money it's like no just like i had it i I was able to save like he does it in such like an unassuming way honestly that'd be a great story for just someone who mysteriously has all of their shit together no everyone's like this guy this guy's debts are always paid his car is always fine like his mortgage is, is in a really good place I don't know how he does it. And it turns out he does it by constantly pulling heists because in this economy, that's the only fucking way, isn't it? <laughs> it's not a bad pitch, actually. I like, but, I like that. But but there's something completely, like, unromantic about the heist. Mm-hmm. Like, he just has figured out a way to take money. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, basically. Hmm. It was sort of like, uh, it's actually another uh, oh, another Philip Sharon Hoffman movie where I read it, uh, Hard Eight. There's a good yeah. bit, there's a Hard Eight, it's a great movie. It's Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie. It stars uh, John C. Riley. As like a down on his luck guy who falls in with a master gambler and uh, con mm-hmm. artist played by Philip Baker Hall, yeah. and there's a bit at the beginning where Philip Baker Hall tells uh, John C. Riley how to, with just a little bit of money, you gotta have a little bit, you can scam a hotel into giving you a free room just by tricking them into thinking you're a high roller even though you're not, and it's a good con. It's also mundane and time-consuming. <laughs> There's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing sexy about it. You will not be drinking martinis in the VIP room. It requires sitting in front of a slot machine for like eight hours very patiently. And occasionally switching the teller you use to switch out your, your chips. But mm. that's what it is. That's what a yeah, smart man. crime is one that isn't flashy. A smart crime is one where... You you get away with it. You're not calling attention to it. You're not leaving a calling card. Ha ha! You had you just had your jewels jewels stolen by the gray fox. No, <laughs> <laughs> the best crime is one where they never find out their jewels are stolen. Yeah. Um, uh, but back to getting back to before yeah. the devil knows you're dead. Um, there's there's nothing romantic about the heist they're planning. No. Uh, it's it's just sort of. It's ill-advised, and it's not even of, like, a romantic spot. It, a, it's their parents' store, yeah. so it's not even, like, the, the thrill. Like, it's yeah, not, it's, it's it's not a cool-looking place. They just sort of pull up to it. It's this little tiny room with, yeah. like, it's just a little jewelry store. Yeah. It has some valuable things in it. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's a hall. Like, you have to have a fence for it. It's not, not even as nice like... as the jewelry store in Uncut Gems. It's, no. Uh, yeah, no, which, it's not. Which is actually pretty high some, Yeah, some yeah. pretty nice things in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's yeah. just completely boring, mundane place to rob. Yeah, it's a mm. damn good movie. I'm so glad. Thank you, every once in one of our patrons who voted yeah, for this because yeah. uh, I am. This is this is easily a Sidney Lumet classic. Uh, and, which uh, yeah. and yeah, this was his last film as a director. Yeah. Um, and he, he he made this in 2007. I think he died several years later. I don't think he had uh, like any other big projects lined up after this i think it was pretty much well, uh, he was he was kind quite of old he'd been making movies yeah, was, I think it was for like 60 his, years at that point was in his 80s uh, when he passed away mm. but yeah he he was he was an old man he had decades of work behind him uh he died at age of 86 in 2011 mm. so yeah he was al- already in his 80s when he was making this movie still had it mm. still had that passion uh still had 
the drive to get into the heads of these characters in this really kind of natural, talented way. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's really, really wonderful. All right. Well, uh, that is it for Critically Reclaimed this week. Sorry we're a little late. Uh, life got in the way. But uh, we'll be back next time. Uh, and uh, we will be going over to the Turner Classic Movies section of HBO Max, which, it must be said, is a rather respectable section of a streaming mm. service. And I'll, I'll say this, uh, there, there is some overlap with the Criterion uh, channel. Some. We tried to avoid uh, because, it, but uh, there's some. The Criterion channel, uh, HBO made a deal with the Criterion channel back when Filmstruck shut down. Yeah. There's this big uh, concern as to what was going to happen to the Criterion library in terms of streaming. Yeah, and uh, they licensed a lot of their stuff to. Uh, I think HBO and Hulu had a lot of the Criterion well, channel. I, to be, for a to while. be fair, Criterion licenses their stuff from other places, and a lot of it came yeah, from the Warner yeah. Library, the Turner Classic Movies Library, which mm-hmm. is what Warner had. So it it it, it all makes sense. It, it all it, makes it sense. all makes sense. Not everything it, on Criterion is on HBO Max and vice versa. Oh no, but Cri- there's a lot. Criterion of is far more expansive, and yeah. and and I do love the Criterion right. channel. But there is some really good older films that are on the HBO Max uh, Turner Classic Movie section that are not on Criterion, and I even somewhat respect HBO Max taking a stand and saying that like some movies from like the 80s, 90s, and even early 2000s deserve to be in the classics section. Mm. And I think that we're a little hesitant to admit how old some movies are because it makes us feel old. Mm. And that's nonsense. So, like, yeah, I'm totally fine with some of the more contemporary stuff on. Like, Bridget Jones' Diary is a 20-year-old movie. Fine. (laughs) Put it on Turner (laughs) Classic Movies. I don't mind. Um, Like, the the first time I heard Pearl Jam on the classic rock station... It hurt a little bit, right? Yeah, that, that, that one stung. Yeah. But then you get used to it, and it's just like, it's a classic. It's fine. Well, that, yeah. It's yeah. Like the, the sign is now like a corny old song. Yeah. Well, also, also, Jesus Christ, do not, uh, it's not that corny, actually. Look at the actual lyrics of that thing. I, I like the sign. Uh, but yeah. it's a bass. Yeah, I know. And I think it's because you haven't actually done any research. I read an article about what that song is actually about. Oh, I know really what it's about. about. Nazis? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna. Move it's, on. it's it's ironic. It's upbeat. It's it's like uh, ninety nine red balloons. That's about nuclear annihilation, but it's still a fun song. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, your options for next critically reclaimed are hmm. as follows: The Bodyguard. This is the uh, classic film uh, starring Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston where Kevin Costner is hired to protect a uh, famous singer from a violent stalker, and over the course of that uh, job, they fall in love, which they're not supposed to do. Ironic. Ironic. Anyway, next up is uh, the classic, uh, it's actually another film noir, uh, Key Largo, starring Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson, and Lauren Bacall. Uh... Takes place in Key Largo, directed by John Huston, also co-stars Lionel Barrymore and Claire Trevor. One of those many, many films that I first learned uh, learned the title of from Mystery Science Theater. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What do they do in Mystery Science oh, Theater? The river? Let's rip off the ending to Key Largo, Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I guess yeah. now I know how Key Largo ends, but never mm. mind. Uh, moving on, uh, we've got Jonathan Demme's comedy Married to the Mob, uh, starring uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as a woman who marries into the mafia and ends up uh, uh, becoming a target of an FBI uh, sting. It also co-stars Matthew Modine, Mercedes Rule, Alec Baldwin, and Oscar-nominated for this film, the late, great Dean Stockwell. And then lastly, we've got another option. This is completely out of left field. These don't Do not try to connect these things. They don't connect. Hmm. Uh, we've got Quadrophenia. Yeah, this is a uh, musical about opera mo- based about the on mods, the Who. Yeah, yeah, about the mods and the rockers, and they do not get along terribly well. They're like Hatfields and McCoys. Yeah, it's like, hey, you mods, and we're like, yeah, and the rockers are just like mm. jerks, and the mods are just like, hey, rockers, I'm rubber and you're glue, <laughs> and the rockers are just like, nah. <laughs> the movie probably does it better than I did I don't know, I haven't seen it Anyway, we, we will review one of those On the next episode of Critical Reclaimed To vote 
You just have to be a member of our Patreon. Even $1 a month gives you the power to vote. Head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And you also get at every single tier a wide variety of bonus content, including uh, commentary tracks, uh, podcasts about the Academy Awards, podcasts about every single episode of Star Trek, podcasts about every single episode of the 1960s Batman, and other backlogs as well. Mm. Podcasts about Firefly, TV movies. There's a ton. Um, thank you to every single one of our patrons, without whom this show wouldn't be possible and none of our shows would be possible. We're incredibly grateful to all of you. If you would like to join in the conversation, there's a couple of different ways to do that. Firstly, you can follow us at Critic Acclaim. That's mm. Critic Acclaim. Critically Acclaimed was too long for Twitter. The jerks. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at William Bibiani. I'm uh, on Twitter. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, we also have an email address. It's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. If you email us at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, we might read your email on our podcast, We've Got Mail. So feel free to send in any questions you have, any uh, critiques or corrections we, we may need to have. Um, really, we're open books. So whatever you want to talk about, stuff in the industry, movies, recommendations, whatever you want. Mm. Um, and also we have a P.O. box if you prefer to send something snail mail in a physical letter and make you feel all... All cool, like a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> uh, we can write in uh, to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And as you can probably imagine, even if this is the first time uh, listening to this podcast, uh, I also make soap. Uh, me and my partner, M. Lapis da Silva, we have a soap store on Etsy where we design uh, uh, handcrafted soaps and, mm -hmm. uh, and we sell them. It's called Salt Cat Soap. All one word. Mm. We're on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Salt Cat Soap. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's good stuff for the holidays, good stocking stuffers, lots of really cool designs. And um, we've had a ton of sales and a lot of really positive reviews. And that means a lot to us. So check it out. We got some neat stuff over there. We're very proud of it. And uh, we hope you like it. And I guess that's that. So uh, thank you everybody for listening And we do not have a good way To end this podcast 